talks on psychoanalysis, shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Johanna Felt. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In today's episode, we welcome Aurelia Eisenstein, who will talk about her upcoming book, which will be published at the end of September 2020, titled Désir de leur pensée, which means desire, pain and thought, beginning with a discussion on primal masochism. Marilia Eisenstein is a training analyst from the Hellenic Psychoanalytical Society and the Paris Psychoanalytical Society, of which she was also president. In 1992, she received the Bouvet Prize. She has been a representative on the board of the IPA and also on its executive committee. She is currently European President of the New Groups Committee of the IPA and Deputy Secretary of the Congress of French Language Psychoanalysts. Good morning. I'm very happy to do this podcast for the IPA. It is a way of introducing my book to be published at the end of September by ITAC under the title Désir, Douleur, Pensée. It means desire, pain and thought. I will begin by speaking to you about primal masochism which I see as the novel of psychoanalytic theory. I have long been interested in the Freudian conception of primary erotogenic masochism, described in 1924 in The Economic Problem of Masochism, a paper that I have always found deeply moving. In this text, Freud asked himself Is it possible that pain is tainted with displeasure? Is it possible that pain is tainted with pleasure? Worse, could it be that pain and the search of pain govern psychic life? But if so, what becomes the pleasure principle? These questions were crucial for him. I think they are still out today for us. I had the great fortune and pleasure of working with Michel Fin, as well with Benno Rosenberg, who was not only a mentor, but also a real friend. When I was writing my book on Michel Fin in 2000, he gave me the honor of proposing me an unpublished article for inclusion in the book, which he titled that very day, A propos du masochisme érogène primaire, dialogue imaginaire avec Beno Rosenberg, means on primary erotogenic masochism, an imaginary dialogue with Beno Rosenberg. In this paper, Michel Fin evoked the clinical material of his patients in whom he says bad hyperexciting conditions impeded pleasant passivity from establishing itself. Only the absence of this experience is re- registered 
in the mind. In such cases, only activity will be valued and phallic narcissism will infiltrate the ego ideal. And further, he continues, It was the observation drawn in most cases from somatic patients that led me to the to speak of an incompletion of masochism. This incompletion pertains to the passive position that is made inaccessible by early traumas. Mentalization et passivité, mentalization and passivity, the very last article by Fan, translated in English in 2017 by the IGPA. The notion of an incompletion of masochism pertaining to the passive position seems to me original and very illustrative of Michel Fan's thinking, who during supervision, always drew our attention to what was lacking. Think about what is and also about what lies beneath the surface, he told us. The notion of incomplete masochism, or as I put it myself, incompletion of the primary masochism, is at the crossroad of the psychoanalysis of neurotic patients, psychotic patients and borderlines, as well as of somatizing patients. Now, masochism has a bad press even among psychoanalysts, and I'm pleading for its rehabilitation, above all in the mind of professionals. But now, here is again the confounded problem of masochism, exclaimed Sandor Ferenczi in 1931. Masochism, and there is enough there to upset theory and lead analysts to say anything, pleasure and displeasure, for example. But what if, from being the motor of analysis, suffering, were to become its aim. I notice here that in two texts, the problem of the acceptance of unpleasant ideas in 26 and on the acceptance of in pleasure in 32, Sandor Ferenczi tackles the pleasant of pleasant of absent of pleasant passivity studied years after, by Michel Fin. Why do we have an avid interest for one metapsychological concept rather than another? Freud, exceptional genius, left us a corpus which remains the foundation of all psychoanalytic thought. André Green, for his part, remained truly Freudian while drawing out all the consequences of Freud's work. He chose the axis that leads from negative narcissism to desobjectalization, to negative hallucination and blank psychosis. 
André Green has left us a new work in the full sense of the term. Though in this book my imaginary interlocutors are, above all, Michel Fin and Benno Rosenberg, although less well-known by the international community, they are also great commentators of Freud who chose for their part the axis narcissism-masochism. As a child, I wanted to understand what thought consisted of. I was oddly convinced that only headaches gave rise to important and interesting ideas. This type of question led me to studies in philosophy. Yet it was only later on that I had to accept that the question of masochism represented for me what I call the novel of psychoanalytic theory. I mean here that it is everywhere, either in full evidence or lurking beneath the surface. I mean that it is everywhere, I told it, full evidence or lacking. When it lacks, it has consequences. I will tell you after. In my view, our theories, implicit or explicit, are profoundly personal and indispensable for thinking about clinical work. When I was still very young, I had experienced both of psychotic patients in the context of a mental health association and of somatic patients at the Paris Psychosomatic Institute. On Friday, I, I worked at the day hospital in the 13th area of Paris. They were really fascinating days. We saw psychotic patients, all their families, and we set up an exploratory psychodrama set by Benno Rosenberg, who was the leader. One day, when we were having lunch, I asked Benno, What was the origin of his interest in masochism? He told me the following story. His father had been a professor of internal medicine in Bucharest during the rise of Nazism, but anti-Semitic laws had forced him to quit and to seek exile in a little village tiny village where he took over from a retired country doctor. The country folk he treated was mistrust, were mistrustful, and one of them finally told him one day that with the old doctor, it always hurt. His injection, dressings, all his treatments were painful, so of course they must do good. These women could not have confidence in the doctor whose injections even were painless. This story is paradigmatic of a belief, or rather an unconscious fantasy, rooted in the human psyche, that suffering, whether physical or mental, is the price a human being 
has to pay for his life. It is an absurd belief for a rational mind, but one that the Christian religion has made use to construct its theory of original sin, of a lost paradise, and redemptive salvation. If Freud, who tackled the problem of primal masochism as early as 1905 in the three essays on the theory of sexuality, so if Freud took more than 20 years to recognize painfully its existence in only in 24, it was no doubt for me owing to the incongruous aspect for scientific thought of a quasi-religious quasi belief. But I would retort that it is the psyche of man that invented religion in order to give respectability to fantasies and beliefs that, in my view, are scarcely convincing in themselves. Masochism, we should not forget that masochism is the burden of life. Without it, we would commit suicide at the first disappointment. It helps us to resist and maintain hope. It is what enables human beings to survive and resist the most tragic and extreme conditions during wars and genocides, when the barbarity of man, the most inhuman of animals, is unleashed. And yet, in every vocabulary, masochism has a bad press. Calling someone a masochist is insulting. I hope to persuade my colleagues and future readers that this is an error. Someone who appears to be in search of suffering suffers, in fact, from a lack of primary erotogenic masochism. The clinical phenomenon of masochism existed long before psychoanalysis. Its manifestations are those of the secondary masochism that we also call moral masochism. The need for punishment, the quest for failure and excessive guilt have always been present in literature, first of all, even since antiquity. Formerly psychiatrists called the quest for pain whether suffered or inflicted algolania. In Freud's work, as early as 1905, three forms of masochism can be differentiated. Erotogenic, feminine and moral. The first is the pleasure of sexual excitation. It is at the basis of the two others. Feminine masochism does not concern women, but rather psychic bisexuality in women and men. Moral masochism is revealed by behavior dictated by unconscious guilt. For me, this behavior or symptoms are the epiphenomenon of a failure of the primary erotogenic masochism that is necessary for dry fusion, as Freud says in 24. The economic problem of masochism, and which is a general subject of this book, I come back to it in several chapters, 
This primary erotogenic masochism is the residue and the sign of a phase of formation for the newborn in which there was an alliance of two drives, Eros and the death drive. It could only be conceived of within the second drive theory. It concerns a very early stage, like that of primary narcissism, when a masochistic nucleus of the ego is formed in the child, which, in my view, will serve to guarantee his survival and his resilience. I very much insist on the term resilience, which is not a metapsychological concept. It is above all used by Boris Gironic, who is a very well-known psychiatrist in France. However, to my mind, this term describes with accuracy the effects of the masochistic nucleus of the ego. I have chosen here to leave aside perverse sexual masochism, which is better known than the other forms. It was the subject of a treaty by Kraft von Ebbing, a contemporary of Freud. He was the one who coined the term masochism. In his Psychopathia Sexualis, published in 1886, he gathered under the term masochism all the clinical manifestations of sexual masochism, which, curiously, he made a pathological magnification of feminine psychic elements. It seems to me appropriate here to mention the figure of Leopold Sacha Mazur, a learned man with an enlightened mind. He was a journalist and a professor in the University of Graz, and I was the first to fight for women to be accepted in Austrian universities. Born in 1836, he was very well known for his novels, tales, and his modernist, anti-conformist, and radically anti-nationalistic position. He received the Légion d'honneur, which is a very important decoration in France. After his death in 1895, his work was burned by the Nazis and then forgotten. It was not until the 1960s, and above all, thanks to Gilles Deleuze, that there was talk once again of his, of his as a writer. In the early 20s, some of his writings were published in France. L'amour de Platon, Diderot à Saint-Pétersbourg, Les Contes du Ghetto, Plato's Love, Diderot in St. Petersburg, and the Ghetto Tales. I would like to do justice here to this author who was mistreated and marginalized. Among other fictionalized accounts, Sacher Mazor had published in 1870 The Venice in Furs which the horrible craft having as ancestor of modern sexology grew on to illustrate sexual masochism. Leopold von Sacher-Mazor had to fight 
years and years to prevent his family name from being associated to a perversion. And he engaged several lawsuits, which he won. But furthermore, if he won them, what is true is that he lost the battle. To conclude these reflections, I would like to emphasize that clinical masochism in its moral form, that is, for example, say negative therapeutic action, resulted in several clinical failures that led Freud to reconsider and rethink his first drive theory. The recognition of the role of erotogenic primary masochism in the fusion of the drive was the consequence of this revision. Now about my title, Why Link Desire, Pain and Thought? Because thought is one of the manifestations of desire, which implies a painful renunciation to the thing in itself. I think that from the outset, in the trajectory of human being, there are unlived pains that are not comprehensible for the psychical apparatus of a newborn baby. In addition, he does not have the word to express anything. Who of us has not seen a happy infant surrounded by love twisting and turning, struggling as if he were prey to unspeakable suffering. He must survive. He's angry, uh, hungry and thirsty. He can be angry too. Thanks to the psychic work of the mother who contains this suffering, the vital need is slowly transformed into desire when the child has learned to cast sex waiting masochistically, and that is very important. Only now desire can give rise to the activity of thought, the inalienable pleasure and privilege of men. But thinking also means renouncing immediate pleasure. Thinking is painful and sometimes dangerous. Because to think is to exist as a subject, to differentiate oneself from other, with all internal but also external and political consequences that this may imply. In the book, my last chapter is on the destruction of thought process, which I have explored in terms of whether they originate in the fear of one's own representation and fantasies, or in what I called a dementalizing submission to the environment. It seems to me crucial today to take interest in the various forms of destruction of thought, for while it affects the individual, the consequences are even greater when mass phenomena are involved. Thinking may hurt, put us in danger, but 
Thinking is living. Living and thinking are one and same thing, as has already written Anna Arendt. Thank you for your listening. Mm-hmm.